The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 497th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to a place that we haven't been to very often. We haven't done them in a while, New Zealand. Awesome. I was doing a bonus cast and I was like, well, we haven't done New Zealand in a while. So I looked up this location that we're featuring, which is the Vulcan Hotel. And after I did the research, I was like, you know, I think it's got enough to do a regular episode on it. So I switched to a different place in New Zealand for the bonus cast and brought this one over to the main feed. Love it. Before we get into sharing the history and haunts of this location, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Lisa and Amber. Thank you for joining our Facebook group. And Amber shared this little bit of information on her welcome. My sons and I have been listening in the car. My four-year-old asked the other day to listen to Scary Schools again. They're spooky kids. <laughs> Love it. Fabulous. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Karen Miller. In France, there is a unique bridge called Le Passage du Gois that connects the French mainland to an island called Noix-Montier. This bridge floods on a daily basis, making it impassable. The length of the bridge is an impressive 4.5 kilometers. This is a world-famous natural wonder that floods twice in every 24-hour period. The average depth of the water that covers the bridge varies between 4 to 13 feet, and the rising sea levels occur quickly. There have been digital signs installed that let drivers know if the road is currently safe to pass, but there are some that tempt fate, and every year there are reports of people becoming stranded or even dying. Rescue towers have been erected to give a safe haven for stranded motorists to climb up and wait for the sea levels to recede. This is not a recommended stretch of road for the common tourist due to its hazardous nature. However, that doesn't keep them away. One thing is for sure, a nearly three-mile-long bridge that becomes impassable twice a day due to flooding certainly is odd. Of the dark. 
And now, this month in history. month of July on the 26th in 1956, Italian luxury liner Andrea Doria sank. The SS Andrea Doria was a flagship of the Italian line and had the capacity for about 1,240 passengers and 560 crew. Amongst its luxuries were three swimming pools and many works of art. Its maiden voyage sailed from Genoa, Italy to New York City. This proved quite popular, so the Andrea Doria crossed the Atlantic several times before that fateful day. The ship departed Genoa on the 17th. As the Andrea was sailing south of Nantucket, her radar picked up an approaching vessel, the MS Stockholm, some 17 nautical miles away. The Swedish passenger liner also detected the Andrea Doria. Both ships made adjustments to their course to widen the passing distance between them. Unfortunately, mistakes were made reading the radar, and while the Stockholm chose the standard pass protocol of port-to-port, or left-side-to-left-side, the Andrea Doria decided to pass on the starboard side. There was heavy fog in the area of the Italian liner, and once the ships had visual contact, they were only two miles apart. With the speed at which each liner was sailing, the collision was unavoidable. At approximately 11.10 p.m., the Stockholm struck the starboard side of the Andrea, perforating seven of her 11 decks. Even though the Swedish liner's bow was crushed, it remained seaworthy. The Andrea Doria, however, was not so fortunate. Within minutes of the collision, the Doria began listing hard to its starboard side, thus prohibiting access to the ship's portside lifeboats. Although 51 people were ultimately killed, this number was relatively low due to other ships rushing to the SOS call transmitted by the SS Andrea Doria. The collision causes cited were heavy fog, high speeds and poor visibility, and incorrect use of radar. There are two things that bring people to St. Bathans in New Zealand, gold and fossils. The St. Bathans fauna bears dozens of different kinds of fossils. The small town itself was once a center of the Otago Gold Rush, and one of the leftover locations from that time is the Vulcan Hotel. A painted lady might have lost her life at the hotel, and today people claim her spirit haunts one of the rooms there. Join us for the history and hauntings of the Vulcan Hotel. The central Otago area of New Zealand is rich in sedimentary formations and fossils. In the lower Bannockburn Formation is something called the St. Bathans fauna, which is a cache of fossilized prehistoric animals formed by deposits in a shallow freshwater lake. Many tourists and scientists flock to St. Bathans to see and study the fauna. One of these has been called the St. Bathans mammal because no one is sure what exactly this mammal once was, but it is extinct now. This is a curious species, as bats, cetaceans, and seals seem to be the only flightless creatures to exist in New Zealand because other mammals had to be introduced by humans. 
So how this thing got here is a mystery. Close to the town of St. Bathans, a fossil layer has been exposed along the Manurakia River. This is the remnant of the prehistoric Lake Manurakia. There is a lake near town that was man-made during the Otago Gold Rush named Blue Lake. This is a well-known lake that formed when gold miners turned the 394-foot Caldera Hill into a 551-foot deep pit. After mining operations halted, the hole filled with water, and it gets its name from the distinctive blue color of that water that is created by minerals from the surrounding rocks. Tourists love to camp near it and swim. Yeah, it's a really rich turquoise color. Very Beautiful. Cool. But imagine you took a 394-foot hill and you almost doubled its size down into the ground. <laughs> a lot of work. That is a lot of digging. Gold was first found in New Zealand starting in 1842. This was just a small quantity, so when the gold rushes started in Australia and California, many settlers left the island. Commercial interests in New Zealand needed to keep people there, so they offered a prize of 500 pounds to anyone who could find payable quantities of gold. A timber merchant did just that in 1852, and a brief gold rush was launched. The Maori of New Zealand must have chuckled to themselves as they watched these fair-skinned men running around looking for gold that they already knew about. And since they had no use for the ore, they probably wondered what all the excitement was about. The Maori preferred bone, obsidian, and greenstone because they could fashion weapons from those materials. One area that they knew was flush with gold ore was central Otago. One European did manage to stumble upon a small find in 1851, but it wouldn't be until 1861 that a rush would ensue. Gold was discovered at Welshman's Gully in 1863. This is today the town of Cambrians and sits about four miles from St. Bathans. The name was inspired by the Welsh coal miners that worked both the gold and coal pits here. Australian prospectors led by Irishman A.G. Payman found more gold a few miles northeast of Welshman's Gully, and within four months, there were 200 miners at the site. They built a town and called it Dunstan Creek, which would later be changed to St. Bathans. Those early beginnings were rough, as one visitor described this as being a pigsty on the edge of town, with an eye-watering smell and piles of rubbish surrounding the town. Wow, sounds like a great place to stay. I'd build a <laughs> hotel there. <laughs> The description isn't surprising, considering that many of these mining towns were full of temporary structures made from canvas or calico fabric that covered timber frames. If a town proved viable, more permanent buildings were built from timber and concrete. And while many miners flocked to these towns, entrepreneurs came as well to establish shops, banks, and hotels, and most of them made more than the miners. Women who came and worked alongside their husbands were referred to as colonial helpmeets. If a woman became widowed, she received ownership rights. I thought that was pretty advanced for its time. Absolutely. Because here, you know, I mean, if a woman's husband died, the land didn't necessarily go to her. The Otago Gold Rush lasted until 1864, but this didn't end prospecting. Gold extraction became a more industrialized mechanical process and gold fields were reworked. Chinese laborers were invited to come help with this reworking. The first commercially successful gold dredge in the world was developed in New Zealand and named the Dunedin for the New Zealand town. Throughout this time, St. Bathans, which had been named for the Scottish borders village of Abbey St. Bathans, grew, and by 1887, there were 2,000 miners in the area. Some buildings from the start of St. Bathans still stand today. There are many cottages that had served as homes for the various merchants in town. 
The Timbered Cowry Post Office opened in 1909 and is still in operation today. There are a couple of churches, St. Patrick's Catholic Church and St. Alban the Martyr, and that St. Alban's the Martyr was the first prefabricated building in New Zealand and was made from corrugated iron. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was too. And of course, that's the Protestant church. They had their Catholic church and then their Protestant church. The most famous leftover building from the Gold Rush days is the Vulcan Hotel. The man who built the hotel was Samuel Hanger. Hanger had been born in 1830 in Hobart Town, Tasmania, Australia. Hanger married Mary Pattison in 1852, and they had 11 children. When Hanger heard about the gold in Otago, he decided to go, leaving behind a pregnant Mary and the two children they had at the time. He traveled via the ship Aldinga in November of 1862. In 1864, he sent for his family to join him. Samuel didn't work in St. Bathans as a miner. His skill was blacksmithing, and he set up a calico tent from which he supplied the miners with sluice pipes and drink. Hanger built his family a stone cottage that still stands in the town today. Even though the main part of the gold rush ended in 1864, there were still many people living in and traveling to St. Bathans. Hanger decided to open a hotel. For many of us, when we hear the name Vulcan, we immediately think of Star Trek and the character Spock. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Vulcans were logical beings who didn't experience emotions, and Spock was half Vulcan. But the name of the Vulcan Hotel clearly wasn't inspired by this because it dates back to the 1800s. The Vulcan the hotel is named for was the Roman god of fire, Vulcan. Metalworking was one of his areas of expertise, and since Hanger had been a blacksmith, he was inspired to use the god's name for the hotel he decided to open. Hanger opened the Vulcan Hotel in 1869, despite the fact that there were already 13 hotels in St. Bathans. The original Vulcan Hotel was a corrugated iron building with two doors and two windows. Sounds like luxury accommodations. (laughs) Oh my. Five years later, he expanded and built an annex across the street that featured a billiards room and more rooms to sleep in. Samuel died in 1879 and left Mary to run the hotel, and she did that for several years. In 1888, she decided it was too much for her, and none of the hangar children were interested in the hotel business. But her son David's father-in-law, John Thurlow, was interested, and he bought the Vulcan Hotel with his brother William. The men had barely had the hotel for a year when it was damaged by a fire. They repaired the Vulcan, and in 1899, they extended the billiard room annex by building on stables. William Thurlow died in 1902, so the license was transferred to a man named Patrick Sexton, who held it for five years and then transferred it to Gilbert O'Hara in 1907. A couple by the name of McDevitts held the license for the Vulcan from 1912 to 1922. During their tenure, the Vulcan Hotel was destroyed by fire, and it was decided to rebuild it with red brick. Good idea. Yeah. (laughs) No kidding. The Vulcan, ironically, had major issues with fire. Due to the fire god name, I would assume. (laughs) I I mean, you couldn't plan it any better. It's like, don't name it after me unless you want the thing to burst into flames. And in 1931, it would be destroyed by fire again. (laughs) I mean, don't name anything Vulcan. The Ballarat Hotel was built in 1882 from mud brick and stood just three sections to the south of the Vulcan Hotel. It had sat empty for a while, so when the Vulcan burned down in 1931, the license was transferred to the Ballarat Hotel building and renamed the Vulcan Hotel. However they work things there in New Zealand, I notice this even up to our current time, it's not like you buy the business or whatever. Like here we would say they sold the hotel and then those people ran it. 
or you could say this person's the owner, that person's the innkeeper. It's all about having the license and transferring the license to somebody else. Very good. So I guess transferring the license is similar to them buying the business. The sign was repainted out front with a shamrock between the words Vulcan and Hotel. This shamrock is a throwback to the rivalry the Irish settlers from St. Bathans had with the Welsh settlers from Cambrians. The rivalry was dubbed the War of the Roses locally and got very bitter. In 1934, it was decided that mining operations should stop because there was a real fear that the main street and buildings would fall into the hole that eventually became Blue Lake. That was probably prudent. (laughs) Like, stop (laughs) digging. You're going to kill us all. In 1974, the billiards room and stables were sold for use as a holiday home. In 1987, a number of locals formed a company to buy the Vulcan to keep it in local hands until the new owners, Jerry and Denise Shaw, purchased the hotel in June of 2021. Sue Ingram manages the Vulcan. The building is registered as a Category 1 historic place by Heritage New Zealand. The Vulcan Hotel is thought to be one of the most haunted buildings in New Zealand. The most active room is Room 1. And that is because a legend claims that a lady of the evening that worked in St. Bathans was killed in this room when this was the Ballarat Hotel, sometime in the 1880s. Her name was Rose or Rosie, or sometimes she is referred to as the Rose. To add insult to injury, the reason for the murder is thought to be that Rosie had a small quantity of gold that miners had given her, and the murderer took that and left town. From that time, there have been many reports of lights going on and off by themselves, disembodied footsteps, doors creaking and locking themselves, cold spots, sightings of full-bodied apparitions, groaning in the hallways, kettles boiling without being turned on, and a mysterious shadow figure seen at the foot of the bed in room one. Rosie's apparition has been seen several times reclining on a chaise lounge in the dining room. Women usually don't have any issues staying in room one, but men reportedly get held down and sometimes throttled. That would be interesting to see, somebody getting throttled by something you can't see. Maybe interesting to you because you're not a man. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Kind of reminds me of Nightmare on Elm Street where they're getting dragged across the walls and the ceilings. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastic into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The manager of the hotel, Sue Ingram, said of the spirit Rosie, she locks and unlocks doors, moves things about, and behaves like a general toe rag. (laughs) I guess that's some slang in New Zealand. Not sure what it means. Right now, she is generally well-behaved, but she has her moments. We had a new carpet installed in November, and she didn't seem to like that at all. Maybe it was the color, maybe it was the disruption, but she was very active and a real nuisance. People sleeping in the room have felt her sitting on the bed. There's been an extra weight. Others have felt her on their feet. When she's about, the room gets cold. One of the guests was unfazed by Rosie's presence and waking up said, I know it's you, Rosie, at which point she left the room. 
Royce Clark, a co-partner of the hotel in 2020, told Debbie Jameson from the website Stuff, quote, On a previous occasion, when he stayed there, he was awoken by the electric jug turning on and off by itself during the night. Convinced it was a friend playing a prank, Clark sat with the door ajar and a mirror, but saw no one moving before the jug started again. The next day, he examined the jug and pulled it apart, but was unable to get it to operate independently. Then I knew for sure it was her, he said. Author of Haunted New Zealand Road Trip, Mike Wallbank, wrote on Haunted Auckland in 2020 of his stay at the hotel. There was another story of a female staff member working there one night, who screamed as she saw someone walking through the bar area. They say she was terrified. Royce was working that night and witnessed the look of sheer terror on her face at the time, an image that has remained with him since. More recently, that week in fact, Royce awoke at 2 a.m. to a loud clicking sound. It was the kettle jug in the corridor for patrons to make tea and coffee switching on. Thinking it was a mate of his also staying there, he went back to sleep. Next morning, he questioned it. His mate hadn't gotten up. Checking the jug, it was still warm. For some reason, the jug had turned itself on and boiled. This happened numerous times soon after, so him telling that story, this is like a regular occurrence now. The men could find no logical reason for this happening other than one playing a prank on the other and denying it, Royce's initial assumption towards his mate, which they both swear wasn't the case. I'm told of a few male patrons reporting being woken and held down with hands around their throats and an overwhelming sense of fear. These are the more common reports, a theory being that the Rose might be getting back at men for causing her death. I'd like to know if those guys could describe the pressure, the weight. I mean, does it feel like a woman's hands around your throat or does it feel like it has more strength to it? Now, of course, we don't know. In the afterlife, you might be stronger. You might be superwoman. And so you (laughs) maybe could do that. But I would think a woman putting her hands around a man's throat is going to be, you know, it's pretty difficult for a woman to try to strangle a man with just her hands. I, I don't know if I've ever heard that being done before. The night before I arrived, Royce told me that he had gone around the bar locking up after a long day, something he does every night. He locked the front door first, then went around shutting windows, drawing the curtains closed, and turning off the lights. Before heading to bed, he checked the front door one last time, as he always does. The next morning, the bar door was found open. The door can only be unlocked and opened from the inside. The lock itself, being of the solid slide bolt make with the second locking button, is firm and secure and only released from the inside. No one, including myself, could find any reason or answer to this mystery. So what do we have? Many years of anecdotes from both patrons and staff. Many experiencing the exact same event. Many describing the same details. Could it just be the power of suggestion at play? Makes me wonder if this is something more residual, almost like maybe they have more than one spirit there and you have a caretaker who's going around doing the duties. Could be. Mike Pohl visited the Vulcan Hotel and wrote of his experience there in 2022 on Medium. It was summer and still perfectly light and I pulled up beside a pretty laid back scene. The publicans, husband and wife, were sitting on the chairs outside the pub along with two guests. I parked the car and joined them. They produced my meal and we all shot the breeze for a while until eventually the guest headed to bed. The husband then went to bed and it was just me and his wife chatting. The next day I wanted to hunt for fossils, so arranged an early breakfast at 7 o'clock. Eventually she got up to go and told me to find myself a room when I was ready. Any room except the number one or the number two. It's got the, and they wrote it as guess, 
I'm thinking she like did a little air quotes, guess, meaning ghosts. My ears pricked up. The number one, I asked. Oh, I guess you may as well spread yourself out, she said. Take the number one if you want. The room had a small double bed against the far wall and a bedside table with an alarm clock on the near side of it. There was a window out onto the deserted street. I went to bed and, unusually for me, fell asleep quickly. In the dead of the night, I was woken by being slammed twice into the mattress. Oh, my goodness. There was no fear, just immediate exhilaration. (laughs) Are you you sure it was exhilaration (laughs) and not fear you were feeling? Because I would not be like, wee, do it again, do it again. A little bit of adrenaline. (laughs) Yeah. All I could think was, wow, that was the ghost. Maybe after I would be exhilarated, but at the moment I'd be like, what the hell just happened? I looked at the clock. It was 620, and I could hear music coming down from the corridor from the vicinity of the kitchen. Good, I thought. That's the sound of my breakfast being made. I lay in bed going over and over the experience and thinking, wow, 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 that was the ghost. I've experienced the ghost. But then I realized I'm lying on my left-hand side. If I had just looked at the clock, I would have had to have been laying on my right-hand side. And I know I haven't moved at all. And then I opened my eyes. It was pitch black. It was so dark, I couldn't have seen the clock anyway. And there was no music. It was dead quiet. I got up, turned the light on, and checked the time. It was just after three. Confused, I turned the light back off and went back to bed. I didn't sleep for ages. Then did. Then woke up about 30 minutes after I said I wanted breakfast. I rushed to the shower, then to the dining room. The publican wasn't too happy, of course. As I tucked into breakfast, I tried to redeem myself. That ghost, I said. People feel someone sit on the bed beside them, don't they? Yes, she said. But some people get slammed in the mattress. But just last week, we had a woman who was woken up by someone playing with all of her toes. Ooh, I wouldn't want that either. But clearly he experienced something that other people have. Tickle, tickle. The best way I can try to describe what I felt was as if someone had lowered a huge electromagnet over the bed. Yes, I'd have to have the opposite polarity, but work with me on this. And then thrown the switch twice in quick succession. If there was a sound to it and there wasn't, it would have been a warp, warp. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) To be absolutely clear, it had a sort of electronic nature, but there was no shock. What I experienced deep in that night was far from my expectations. Unfortunately, I wasn't woken up by the spirit of some young woman, good-natured, despite being robbed of her life well over a century before. Rather, what it was was entirely inhuman. Of course, it may be entirely unrelated to the ghosts other people have experienced for decades, but this seems like too much of a coincidence. Whatever it was that I felt, I have never felt either before or since. Whatever it is, giving that number one bedroom a strange reputation, I'm sure I've experienced it. And I love that he describes it this way, because now you're going, what kind of force was this? Was it something that's not even human? Is it something else that's been called to this space? Are there multiple things going on here? You know, we get our devices to go off from that electromagnetic pulses or whatever, interference, something like that. And he's describing it that way. Is it just actually that force that caused that to happen. Could be. Let me also point out, I had read some other stories about people who had gone in there and done some ghost hunting and stuff. And the EMF would go off. There's like something towards the top of the room. And I don't know if it's on an outside wall or something, but it gives off a ton of EMF. 
So I don't know if people are, you know, kind of picking up on this EMF coming from something electrical and it's causing them to have these kinds of hallucinations or experiences. Although if you're getting slammed into a mattress, that's not just hallucinating something. It's something physically happening to you. Very interesting. Yeah. There's another haunted place in St. Bathans. The post office that we mentioned earlier is said to be haunted by an elderly woman, possibly a grandmother and she usually has two young children with her. It isn't surprising that a town like St. Bathans, which is nearly a ghost town now, would have spirits. There was so much life here with saloons and brothels and mining. Is it possible that some of the former life still continues on in the afterlife? Is the Vulcan Hotel haunted? That That is for you to to decide. Well, if anybody's made the trip to St. Bathans, it sounds like it's a gorgeous area to check out, especially that Blue Lake. And if you're into fossils, that St. Bathans fauna just sounds like it's tons and tons of them. I don't believe we'll ever make it to New Zealand, but be a cool place to check out. You never know. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com or any of our social media out there. We're up on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, you name it. Amy had shared in the crew, if any of you have listened to some of the first episodes of HGB's Paranormal Conversations, Kelly and Diane had Destination Mystery on. Melissa is one of the most amazing people I know, and I've been on a few investigations with her. She has her degree in parapsychology. She is literally a ghost doctor. Then there's me. I wouldn't say that I'm sensitive. Once in a while, I might feel something, a premonition. But on the investigations I've been on before, I've never really felt a presence. I remember hearing my first EVP that I actually heard without cleaning up the audio. I was so intrigued, I wanted more. And then we went on an investigation together Friday night. And this was probably about three weeks ago. I haven't been able to shake the experience since then, and I wanted to share in hopes that I might be able to put words to the thoughts and feelings that I'm still trying to process. I live in northern Utah, and there are many spots around here that are known to have unexplained activity associated with them. We have as many urban legends as an 80s arcade has quarters. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. A lot of my quarters, too. One of the lesser known stories that have been told is that of a young girl who lived in a small community in the late 1800s. She was around 16 or 17 years of age and the victim of a terrible crime. A very prominent member of the community accused her of lying with the devil. The account of what happened is that a large group of men took her up to a very wooded area and tied her to a tree and tried to force her to admit to being a witch and rendezvousing with the devil. She did not, and they came at her with their torches trying to get her to confess. With her hands and feet bound to the tree, the group of men grew bolder and eventually a torch was taken to the tree itself and then to her clothing. Before the smoke choked out her voice, she cursed the men of the town and said that she would never leave and the community would never survive nor be free from her. Melissa had been up to the tree before and had quite a bit of activity but wanted to go back and so I went with her. It is quite a ways up the mountain and yes, it is very densely wooded but then you come around a corner and there's a clearing with nothing growing save a very old and knotted tree. Most of all the trees were evergreens but then there are a few aspens and other deciduous trees then this large knotted tree that had a two to three foot weathered wooden fence encircling the tree, about 10 feet in all directions from the base. That's interesting that they had a fence around a tree. Does make you think there's something peculiar there. Rumor has it that men need to stay behind this fence as their presence causes a gust of chill wind to kick up. Despite the very wet year we've had and the green mountainside, the area inside the fence was barren of any new growth. Melissa's daughter was holding an EMF detector and we walked inside of the fence and around the tree. In spots around the tree, we found the EMF detector was lighting up from yellow to red and back down to green. 
It's an old tree, and I thought of a few reasonable explanations for this to happen. I looked up through the sparse branches of the tree towards the twilight sun, and no sooner did I get this that I felt an overwhelming sinking feeling in the pit of my gut. Overwhelming sadness pierced my soul, and I felt like dropping to my knees and weeping. I was focused on a large hollow halfway up the tree, trying desperately not to bring attention to myself, but my heart felt as dead and empty as the black hole of the tree. Tears in my eyes started to make everything blur as I pulled myself together enough to get out from inside the fenced area. Melissa was getting equipment out of her suitcase when I ran to her, put my head on her shoulder, and sobbed. I'd say she's a little sensitive. Yeah. She asked if I was all right, and I told her the overwhelming feeling of sadness and unexplained grief, even the sense of loss that had overcome me. In a previous investigation of the tree, Melissa had stated that she was there to help tell her story. In that session, she caught two significant and clear EVPs. One EVP was witch, and when asked why did they say you were a witch, the EVP caught the word baby. Oh, I wonder if she was pregnant out of wedlock, and so they Could said, be. oh, you're pregnant with the devil's baby. It was probably some big guy in town. That had never been suggested in the stories, but in our minds, it started to make sense. After I'd found my composure and felt that we could continue, Melissa started talking, asking if she remembered her being there, then introduced all of us. When she introduced me, the EVP clearly said, Bella. I said, I have a daughter named Isabella. Then another short sound came through the EMF in the same woman's voice, but unintelligible. A few more minutes passed with no notable activity, but then the flashlight that had been placed inside the gate flickered. When asked, the light became stronger and then shut down when asked. A few more unintelligible EVPs came through, and then a deeper sound came across, and just like that, all activity ceased. No more crazy EVP activity, nothing but white noise on the box. Even resetting the flashlight didn't so much as flicker. I wondered about going back inside the gate, but I couldn't replicate any of the foreboding emotions as I'd had earlier. It was just me. What had been with me earlier was no longer there. That night I slept fitfully and I still have a residual heartache. Part of me wants it to go away and part of me wants to figure it out. But all of me wants to share my story and gather some insight on this very perplexing experience. Very, very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. And then Amy also contacted me over on Instagram. And this is after listening to the Haunted Schools episode little bit of synchronicity. Hey, I just so happened to do an investigation at a very old school that happens to be one of the oldest in our valley. It was a primary school for over 100 years and then a community center. There happened to be some specific activity. And yes, in the women's bathroom. (laughs) But of course. (laughs) There is a corner with a sink and mirror on one side and across from it is another mirror on the opposite wall. Between the two is a bench. We thought we saw a mist or shadow and the girl next to me got chills and goose flesh. I had taken many pictures during the investigation, but this is the one I took during that incident. I will post this up on our Instagram. What do you make of it, Kelly? Oh, to me, it definitely looks like a woman in the mirror. Yeah, it looks like there's some kind of a figure in the mirror. I definitely see the figure of a woman in the mirror, and it's not the person taking the picture because Mm -hmm. the person taking the picture is wearing black. You know, when I first looked at it, I thought it was just a weird shadowy thing. To me, it looks like but a woman's head with yeah, a white with, robe or something on She's got dark hair. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's just hard because I'm kind of the same way with mirrors and windows. It's like, you know. Yeah, but they say there there's a lot of power between having those mirrors on either side like that. Oh, that's true. I, I hadn't really thought about the fact that you've got two mirrors reflecting back to each other. And we do know that mirrors can trap things in them. So... Very cool. I'll put the picture up on Instagram, see what you guys think. Also, Cassandra and the crew said, took this picture of my ridiculous dog this morning, then heard today's episode with the fun story about the fat Albert balloon, which I loved. 
Flare is kind of shaped like the Key West spy balloon. Is it synchronicity? (laughs) (laughs) And what kind of dog was that, Kelly? It was a Frenchie, French bulldog, I believe. We won't hurt the poor pup's feelings by saying (laughs) your mom thinks you look like a fat Albert blimp. (laughs) They're solid little dogs. But it was cute. The two side by side. I could see the resemblance. (laughs) All right. We want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Hannah Watson. We're going to be burying you under our marble headstone. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. You really do help bring the show to the masses. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. There was heavy fog in the area of the Italian liner, and once the ships had casual... Casual contact? (laughs) Casual contact with their (laughs) eyes. They were giving each other the eye. Hangar had been born in a... This shamrock is a throwback to the rivalry... Rivalry? Rivalry, mouth of marbles. This shamrock is a throwback to the rivalry the Irish settlers from St. Bathans had with the Wesh... Wesh... Rut row. Wesh. <laughs> oh, boy. It's a lot of sha 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 Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.